Father, I come before you this morning, um, Lord, deeply inadequate to preach these most difficult of passages, especially from the gospel and Micah's prophecy. So, Lord, I pray that uh, whatever I say will be nothing more and nothing less than what you have already said in your word. Come, Holy Spirit, overshadow this preaching and overshadow your people. May these words be the words that you desire for your people to hear and grant us the ability to receive them and to apply them in our lives. We commend ourselves to your love and care this morning. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we're coming to the end of a summer, and summer typically is those times where you go to camp. And I, like, everyone, like a lot of people, my parents sent me off to camp for a week or two every summer. And this inevitably happened, and this was probably a shared experience that we have together if you were a camper at some point, or a counselor, or maybe even the unfortunate adult chaperone or supervisor during those times, you probably were fast asleep one morning, 2.30, 3 a.m., and then all of a sudden, some kid who brought a foghorn blows it, gives a loud blast, and wakes you up and jars you, right? Such an experience. You know the experience. Anyone had that experience, or am I the only one here? Okay, maybe a few of us have, have had that. It's jarring, right? It's unsettling. You can imagine just being asleep and then being awakened by a loud, crashing noise. You shoot out of bed. And this sort of experience is a good image for what Jesus is doing in our gospel reading this morning. Jesus wants his disciples in particular and Israel in general to wake up. To wake up to what's going on, what's happening around them. A crisis moment is coming at the end of Jesus' journey to Jerusalem that will become the climax of human history. This is what the Gospels reveal. And this crisis will challenge the loyalty, challenge the loyalty of Jesus' disciples and force Israel to make a tough decision about him. Will they accept him as Messiah, as King, or will they reject him? So Jesus wants to wake them up to what God is doing in their midst. He wants to wake them up. And Jesus' words jar and unsettle us today as well. And they're intended to wake us up too to what God continues to do in our day through Jesus. And to awaken us to the cost of discipleship. The cost of following Jesus. In a gospel reading from Luke chapter 12, what we might have thought the gospel was all about is being stood on its head. It's being flipped upside down. Is Jesus the prince of peace? Or is he the prince of division? Has he come to rip families apart or to reconcile them? All around us today and within our families, there are increasing divisions. You, I'm sure, know them. Ideological divisions, political divisions, societal ones, cultural ones, religious ones. There are divisions all around us. And so when we hear Jesus' words, we may be thinking, no, thank you, Jesus. we got enough division. I want the peace. I want that bit where you're the prince of peace and not the one who brings fire and division. So how might we make sense of Jesus' words here? How do they fit together, even with the beginning of Luke's gospel, 
where it says that Jesus has come to lead us in the way of peace. And what do Jesus' words at the end of Luke 12 mean for us today? This is what we'll be looking at this morning. Well, in order to better understand Jesus here, we need to hear what he is saying within the larger warp and woof of the unfolding story of God's work in human history told in Scripture. When his good creation was fouled by human rebellion in the garden, God immediately, immediately set out on a salvage mission. He would redeem his creation and buy it back for himself so that it might be restored to him and so that it might become what he had always intended it to be. Now, the Old Testament tells of God's moving among the people of Israel to make progress toward this goal. His acts of redemption and restoration and his repeated promises throughout the Old Testament that one day, one day, he would bring it all to completion. That he would do for the entire creation what he was doing for one small nation. And in God's redemptive purposes, at the end of history, the very heavens and the earth, them, and the earth themselves are to be renewed, restored, and brought together. One of the big problems of the Bible is that heaven and earth are separated at creation. And in one sense, the entire narrative of Scripture is the telling of the story of God putting those things back together. That's the larger story, that the story that we're most accustomed to of Genesis 3 is set within. And in the Gospels, the authors there reveal that Jesus, that in Jesus, this renewal and restoration is in fact the coming of the kingdom of God. In Jesus, the kingdom of God has come. And this is a central proclamation of Luke's gospel. In his life, Jesus proclaimed the good news that God's kingdom of renewal, restoration, and new life was breaking into this world marred by human sin, evil, and death. In his ministry, in his ministry of word and deed, Jesus revealed what salvation really looks like. The power of God to heal, right, all those miracles he was doing, power of God to heal, the power of God to forgive, and the power of God to bring new life out of death. That's what God's salvation looks like. And in his death, Jesus, Jesus accomplished this salvation. At the cross, Jesus waged war against the powers of evil, sin, and death, and defeated them as he took on himself, as he took on himself the sin of the world and died. In his resurrection, Jesus opens the door, by the power of God, opens the door to the renewed creation to come and invites us in while holding that door open for us. This renewal, restoration, and new life that marks the kingdom of God is what Israel has been looking forward to and longing for for hundreds of years when we read our gospel text this morning. And it's what every broken heart, every sin-marred life longs for, even if they do not know it or will not accept it. Our heart longs to find wholeness and completion in God. And this is exactly what the prophet Micah looked forward to in our Old Testament reading this morning. In chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, Micah describes, I hope you heard it, 
didn't sound pleasant. Micah describes the tumultuous time in which he lived. A, a time pregnant with deceit and lies and divisions. So much so that in verse 6, sons had contempt for their fathers. Daughters rose up against their mothers. And it says that the members of one's own household were his enemies. And in the midst of this sin-marred brokenness, Micah boldly, in verse 7, boldly prays with confident and expectant hope, but as for me, but as for me, I will look to the Lord, even in the midst of my family. Falling apart, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will answer me. He will hear me. And God did hear Micah's prayer. Answering it, though, hundreds of years later by sending his only son to take on human flesh to make a way back for not only Israel but for us to the Father, to enter that new creation kingdom of God that is marked by true healing, forgiveness, and new life. Yet in our gospel, even by the time of Luke chapter 12, there are clear signs that Israel and its leaders will reject Jesus, the very salvation of God that they longed for, that they prayed for. In Luke 11, the Pharisees and lawyers claim that Jesus' power over the demonic spirits came not from God, not from their covenant God, but rather from Beelzebub, the prince of demons. At the end of Luke 11, they marveled, they moved well past rejection to open hostility as they sought to provoke Jesus to say something worthy of prosecution and in their hearts, hopefully execution. Let's just get rid of the problem. So by the end of chapter 12, where our gospel reading comes from, Jesus is aware that there is, so, there is not much time left for Israel to respond. His statement in verse 50, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. I mean, that word for distress, distress it is, he has anxiety over this. Jesus is stressing out at the prospects that lay in front of him, not only for himself, because what lays in front of him is a series of events where he ends up rejected and dead, crucified by his own people at the hands of the Romans. But Jesus is not only distressed at what, lay, at what lies ahead for him, he's also distressed at what lies ahead of his family, his people, Israel, if they continue in their rejection of God's salvation that has come to them in human flesh. Jesus is distressed because he knows that what waits for the nation of Israel if they continue their rejection is the very wrath and judgment of God. You see, if having, if having encountered Jesus, one rejects and continues to reject him as Israel does in Luke's gospel, then Jesus is the harbinger of division. He's the harbinger of God's judgment and not God's peace. It is a very real temptation for us to muffle this aspect of the gospel as irrelevant and archaic or insensitive and unloving. 
But God's judgment is real, and Jesus knew it, and it was stressing him out. He was distressed at the prospects of Israel. And it greatly distressed him because he loved Israel. He did not want them to fall under the wrath and judgment of God. That's why he willingly, willingly accepted this mission from God to take on human flesh, to be rejected by his own father, to bear our sins, so that we might have a way back to God and enter his new creation kingdom. The division that Jesus claims to bring in verses 51 through 53, I mean, it's hard to read. It really is hard to read. If you have any division in your family, you know how difficult, how difficult that is. To hear Jesus say, I did not come to bring peace, but division. To set members of a family against one another. So the division that Jesus claims to bring in verses 51 through 53, even division among families, is a sign that God's judgment has already begun to fall on a people. That was true of Micah's day. That's true of Jesus' day. And it seems increasingly true of our own day. This is why Jesus was adamant in Luke chapter 12, verses 8 through 9, that everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will acknowledge before the angels of God, and the one who denies me will, will be denied before the angels of God. You see, for Jesus, he wants to make sure that his disciples are clearly taught that what it means, the cost of discipleship. You see, Jesus here clearly teaches that turning and following him requires so pervasive a transformation of how we understand God and his creation-wide plan of salvation that it results in dispositions and forms of behavior, actions in this world that can only be regarded as deviant, as deviant by those who reject God, even those who may be in our own families. Folks whom we deeply love, who like Jesus, we are distressed for. Division is by no means the goal of Jesus' ministry, but it is a consequence. We have to face it. If we don't acknowledge that, then what Gospels are we reading? There is no middle ground here. Jesus, at the end of Luke chapter 12, teaches his disciples the cost of discipleship in every age, in every nation, and in every family. In choosing to follow Jesus' disciples, such you and I must be willing to bear with the divisions, bear with the divisions that may result among our family and friends who do not share our commitment to Jesus. That does not mean that we reject our family and friends. It doesn't mean that we reject them. But it means if we're going to be loyal to Jesus, our Savior, we will bear those divisions, that pain. And in so doing, we'll identify with the very sufferings of Christ. Where what Paul can say to the Philippians or the Colossians, I am filling up in my sufferings what was lacking in the sufferings of Christ. And when following Jesus provokes such rejection and division, Jesus is clear that his disciples must, must maintain loyalty to him above all others, 
even our families. Division is by no means, again, division is by no means the goal of Jesus' ministry. And this is not some one-off teaching for Jesus. You know, it might be e- this might be an easy passage in the Gospels to dismiss if this was the only one we had, but it's not. It's not even the only one in Luke's Gospel. This is not some one-off teaching. He repeatedly teaches disciples that to follow him will require that their loyalty to him transcends their loyalty to all other things, to everyone and everything else. Just listen to how Jesus in Luke 9 states it, verses 59 through 62. To another, Jesus said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those in my home, my family. And Jesus said to him, no one puts his hand on the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And in Luke chapter 14, verse 26, Jesus turns and says to the crowds that are following him on the way to his death, on the way to Jerusalem, if anyone comes to me, and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. He cannot follow me. For whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. You see, Jesus demands that if we follow him, if we follow him, then we must be loyal to him above everyone and everything else. He demands our allegiance, even if it brings division, as an unwelcome consequence in our families and among our friends. This is the cost of discipleship. This is the cost of following a Savior who gets murdered unjustly. This doesn't mean that we reject our family members again or our friends who do not follow Jesus, or who struggle in and are captive to their sin. We don't reject them. We don't see Jesus doing that in the Gospels. Jesus is not calling us to disengage from our families or to quit loving them as Jesus loves them. Rather, Jesus requires that we remain loyal to him, even if our family members reject us for doing so, and to continue that loyalty expressed in our love of them, regardless of how they treat us in response. You see, Jesus forces hard choices. And you can't read Micah's prophecy. You can't read the gospel. You can't even read Hebrews' lection this morning and not say that the gospel, that Jesus Christ does not force hard choices. But at least Jesus is upfront about it. It would be something else if he didn't tell us these things so we come to find out that they're true later on. But he tells us up front the cost. It, it will, it, we will have to pay if we follow him. If we choose to be loyal to him, to be a disciple. This is not some hypothetical situation for many of us at this church. And many of us, many Christians throughout the world. This is not a hypothetical situation. Some of us have already faced such divisions in our families and among our friends for remaining loyal to Jesus. Some of us this moment are facing This very thing. And many more of us will face it in the months and years ahead. So how do we face it? 
How do we face the consequences, the unwelcome consequences of loyalty to God as he is revealed in Jesus and in his holy gospel? I do not know the best way to answer this question. I really do not. I think our our passages, I know our passages this morning give us three practices that we can engage in as a starting place. But we need the Spirit of God to overshadow us, to give us wisdom and discernment, to make us as gentle as a dove and as cunning as a serpent when we engage in loyalty to King Jesus. But there are three practices that we can begin with at least First, we can express a defiant hope in God through prayer. A defiant hope in God through prayer. In Micah 7, verse 7, he prays in an unbelievable context of family and national division. But as for me, in the midst of all that's going on, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for my God, my salvation. My God will hear me. He will answer my prayer. And Micah's hope is not displaced. God demonstrated his faithfulness to Micah and to Israel and to us by sending his only son to die for us and to make a way for us to enter God's new creation kingdom. And that's the basis of not just some wishful hope, but of a confident and expectant hope, a sure hope. And on that basis, we can pray when we don't know what the heck to say or pray. At least we can hand ourselves over to a God. Who Micah says, who is a God like you? Who forgives us? Who does not remain angry forever? Who is full of covenant faithfulness? We must have a defiant hope in God through prayer. And second, we must love Jesus. We must love as Jesus loved. There is a very real temptation in our moment for us not to bear with the divisions that we may come, that we may face out of some misguided view of love. This temptation tries to exalt God's love by ignoring sin or by remaining silent in the face of those who reject God at their own peril. And this is where we don't have the kind of distress that Jesus has and we need to have it because that in part fueled his love. His love provoked in him a distress because he knew that Israel was heading for the wrath and judgment of God. A wrath and judgment, by the way, that he willingly bore. You see, in in, You see, to remove accountability to God for sin is to remove one from the realities that make God's grace so powerful. In an effort to make the gospel more palatable, we risk emasculating it of its most precious truth. That God has paid the debt for our failure and rebellion and has washed it, cleansed it, white as snow. And here's what this means for us. If pressed by friends or family to affirm as good what God clearly reveals as sin, then we are ultimately choosing not to love them. Not to love them. Because in our silence, we shield them from the love and grace of God revealed in Jesus. That overcomes 
listen to this, that overcomes God's own wrath and judgment. Jesus did not shield Israel from the reality of their sin, and in doing so, he offered unto them the limitless grace and love of God. When Jesus came, he came proclaiming the kingdom of God is near. Repent. And so we have to ask the Spirit to give us the wisdom to be compassionate and gentle, but yet also remain loyal, and when needed, tell our family. Alert them to what is in their future. Not out of some type of vindictiveness or sanctimonious self-righteousness, but out of a genuine love for God and for them. For when we try to exalt God's love by ignoring sin, we remove the most powerful evidence of its presence. So we must love as Jesus loved. We must speak the truth in love. And this requires prayer, discernment, and loyal courage to Jesus. And finally, as we close, we must strengthen our bonds of kinship, of family ties within the church, within the family of God, the household of God. One of the most difficult things to experience in life is rejection of any sort. But it's especially painful when that rejection comes from your family. When that family rejects you because of your faith and loyalty to Jesus, Jesus knows this pain. John reveals that his own family, for a season at least, rejected him. And it shows that his own town, hometown of Nazareth, the very small community who knew him well, rejected him. So when we experience rejection, we know that we in that moment are identifying with the very sufferings of Jesus and he with us. We have a high priest who knows what it is to suffer as we suffer. When we experience rejection, it can be easy for us to isolate ourselves. But by the power of God's spirit in us, we must resist this path and lean more fully into the family that God creates and brings together in Jesus through baptism. Christ Church, this is not an easy sermon. These are not easy texts. But we must not shy away from them or act like they're not there. Because through them, through them, and through the power of God at work in us, there might be reconciliation and not division. People have time to respond to the peace that Jesus does indeed offer them. Do not grow weary. Do not lose heart. Do not give up your allegiance to Jesus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I invite you to stand.